right. Welcome, everybody, to this month's episode of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I'm Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at uh, Medical College of Wisconsin in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. We're really excited about our guest today. Mm. Stephen is somebody that I met kind of tangentially through other colleagues here at the Medical College of Wisconsin who heard him speak last year um, at a conference about a topic that I think is really important when we're talking about suicide in Wisconsin in particular that relates to firearm suicide. And we're really excited to get into this topic today. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, we will be talking about issues related to suicide as part of today's episode. So if you find yourself feeling a little bit distressed or anxiety or any kind of emotions that come up and feel like you need to take a break, please feel free to hit pause and step away. Come back later. We'll be here when you're ready. And just a reminder of some local and national resources. If you're concerned about yourself or anyone else, you can always dial 988. That is the new suicide prevention lifeline. If you dial 988, you'll be connected with a trained suicide prevention counselor who will be able to provide you with assistance 24-7-365. That's totally confidential. If you're local to the Milwaukee area, you can call the Milwaukee County Warm Line at 414-777-4729. That line is staffed every evening from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Central Time. With that, we are going to jump into today's episode. Our guest for today is Stephen Oliphant. And as I said, I was introduced to Stephen's work through some colleagues here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Stephen is a doctoral candidate in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University. He received his Bachelor of Arts from Kalamazoo College in 2015, where he was a member of the men's varsity basketball team, very cool, and studied abroad at the University of the West Indies St. Augustine campus in Trinidad and Tobago. Stephen attended the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan and received his Master of Public Policy and a Certificate in Injury Science in 2019. While at the University of Michigan, he worked with the Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium and assisted in research addressing youth firearm injury. His primary research interests include firearm policy, injury and violence prevention, and capital punishment. His recent work that he has published appears in the Journal of Urban Health, Criminology and Public Policy, and then the paper that we're going to be talking about today was published in the journal Injury Prevention. And in his free time, Stephen enjoys playing sports, spending time with his family, and composing music. So welcome so much to the podcast, Stephen. We're really glad to have you. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So something that we ask all of our guests just to kind of kick off our conversation is why did you kind of get into the work of suicide prevention? Obviously your background is in policy, criminology. What kind of drew you to this work in particular? Yeah. So I guess my introduction was, was in being interested in firearm violence prevention. And then from there, just learning more about suicide and how suicide makes up a a large portion of the firearm deaths in the U.S. 
And so that was kind of my introduction. And at the University of Michigan, I started taking courses in the School of Public Health that were more focused on injury prevention. There was a class related to uh, concussions and just thinking about violence and injury issues that are preventable. Uh, suicide just seems like something that is uh, so important and so, uh, in many cases, preventable. So I um, just kind of seemed like a, a, a worthwhile uh, area to kind of focus on violence and, and injury prevention. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So I came to this work a little bit in a little bit of a similar way, um, starting out in public health and then being very interested in injury prevention. And then I was kind of the ad person out in my public health cohort when I was going through. Um, many of the people that I was in school with were interested in public health topics like infection, infectious disease, and cancer prevention and maternal and child health, which are all very, very important topics. And I was kind of the outlier that was interested in bike helmets and falls and suicide prevention. We have on the record now saying that you are interested in fall prevention. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> this, is a running joke. this is a running joke between Andrew and I about falls <laughs> prevention. So. <laughs> You have it on the record. Oh, I should have thought about that. No, right. it's an incredibly important topic in the in the realm. Of intervention is your like it's your baby yeah, it's, yeah. It's my it's my passion. <laughs> yeah, but I always felt like like I said, I felt like the odd one out because I think even when I was getting my master's in public health, it still wasn't at least in my understanding, it wasn't super. It wasn't a super prevalent idea that suicide's preventable. A lot of people thought and still think that, you know, suicide is something that if a person sort of has this in their mind, they're going to do it. And in many cases, like you said, Stephen, it is preventable. Um, so I think it's really interesting coming at suicide prevention from an injury prevention lens, bringing all of the tools of injury prevention science into suicide prevention in a way that we talked to Dr. Steve Hargart several months ago in a way that is kind of helps to remove a little bit of the politics out of it and is able to place it in a very scientific sort of this is this is a prevention science and it can be prevented. And so it's I, I love talking to other injury prevention people because I feel like you're speaking my language. <laughs> I totally hear you. So it's it's really cool to hear how you came to this topic. Yeah, and I, I listened. I actually hope I'm not going to repeat a lot of Dr. Hargarten's talking points, but I listened to that, his episode just a couple of days ago and thinking of the head and matrix and of injury prevention as a science. That was so interesting to me about um, previously some things being thought of as accidents, like unintentional shootings yeah. as being accidental. But when you phrase it that way, there are there's kind of a tendency to think that it's not preventable, but mm -hmm. when you break down the matrix of, you know, pre-event, event, and post-event, and then the, the different factors at play, I think it's such a useful framework within the injury prevention field to think of how we can prevent these adverse outcomes. Yeah. 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 And today we're going to focus, you know, speaking of kind of Haddon's matrix and, you know, injury prevention science, we're going to focus on the agents or kind of the mechanism of injury 
And in this case, it's it's the firearm component of, of suicide, which is, as you said, many people, when they think of firearm injuries, I don't think they think of suicide as being the most prevalent form of firearm injury. But really here in Wisconsin, and I think nationally, about two-thirds of firearm injuries are related to suicidal behavior. And so I did not know that. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of a mind blowing statistic, isn't it? Like, I mean, I think when we look at the popular media, Mm -hmm. we think about interpersonal Mm -hmm. violence, but it really, the majority of firearm injury incidents are suicides. Wow. Yeah. And if, if you look uh, cross nationally, it's kind of an interesting comparison because in other countries, uh, many other countries, it's it's the reverse. Most of the uh, firearm injury deaths are from interpersonal violence as opposed to uh, self harm. Yeah. Yes. That. So I I recently learned that. So I was doing a presentation on gun violence, and I think it was a, a statistic from the WHO, the World Health Organization. That and then there was a graph of all firearm injuries in major industrialized countries. And I think, you know, the United States, obviously suicide was, um, like I said, two thirds. And I think the only other country, and I would have to look back at this. I think the only other country with a similar proportion of homicide and suicide in terms of firearm injuries was Brazil. I would have to look back at that, but it is super interesting that this is an issue, a public health issue that is pretty unique to the United States. And I think, you know, given that this is an issue that kind of exists at the policy and systems level, it's really important to have conversation about policy, which is what we're going to do today. For sure. Yeah. One other question that I just want to ask you before we kind of dive into the meat of our conversation is, and this is something I ask everybody, is what do you wish people knew about suicide? Yeah. So as I was talking about listening to that episode with Dr. Hargarten, I was kind of thinking, anticipating this question, and I kind of arrived at two things that I wanted to say. And I was listening, and he he talked about means mattering and access to lethal means mattering. I thought that's exactly the the first part of my answer that I that I want to talk about. So I guess to kind of build off of of what he said, taking that a step further, I would also want people to know that uh, policy matters. Policy can be an effective tool to prevent suicide especially when people who are suicidal may not be accessible through other means at a time of of crisis. So thinking about waiting periods, we'll talk about how that's kind of a a universal strategy in terms of it doesn't require identification of someone who is suicidal. It applies to whoever is purchasing a firearm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I think just the, the takeaway that I would want people to have is that policy matters and that it can be effective in, in preventing suicide. That's beautiful. I, I felt like giving you snaps <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> when you were saying that, like that, that, yeah, means matter, but then we need to also consider policy around that. Right. And I think part of the limitation of my field of clinical psychology is that we tend to be so focused on the individual level of types of interventions. And I think that's, I benefited from a program that focused on community psychology. So it was a little more kind of thinking about different layers of intervention and prevention. But I think so often we, in my field, at least just talk about individual access to lethal means rather than kind of these broader systemic things that can influence that. 
Yeah, and I I think the way the way to think about policy, or at least the way I think about it, is it's a good complement to the individual level interventions in terms of it, it won't be able to intervene in all of the instances, but it can be a nice supplement to the other interventions that are taking place. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. And I don't necessarily feel like public health has been a part of the dialogue around suicide prevention. Much of the dialogue has been around, you know, kind of fields related to psychology, in some cases, sociology, and public health hasn't necessarily been part of the conversation, I think, in a direct way. And I really think that this is public health's contribution to to suicide prevention is bringing in that focus on policies and systems and structures and how they influence and impact individual level outcomes. Um, And so I think that to your point, Stephen, it's a good complementary discipline to the more traditional disciplines that have been involved in suicide prevention. And and I think I love the policy matters. Like I just, I want to like make a plaque and put it in my door, my office door so that everybody can see it when they walk past. So don't be surprised if you ever come visit the Medical College of Wisconsin that there's not a big sign on my door that says policy (laughs) matters. Sarah's like selling t-shirts next week. (laughs) Oh, I see a side business. (laughs) We'll give Stephen a cut. Uh, yeah, we'll give you a cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to dive into the paper, if that's okay with you both, and talk a little bit about this. Um, so the paper, for folks that might be interested in looking it up, and we'll make sure that this is linked as well, is in the journal Injury Prevention. And the title of the article is Effects of Wisconsin's Handgun Waiting Period Repeal on Suicide Rates is the title of the article. And Stephen, you actually wrote this as a student. Is that right? Uh, yes, this okay. was I actually started my first year in the program kind of doing a literature review about waiting periods. And then the final project for that class was to propose an analysis and then ended up doing that analysis for one of my qualifying papers. We don't have comprehensive exams. Instead, we have these two qualifying papers that you do. And so I, I wrote that and then I kind of revised it and, and presented it at the SABRE conference and then submitted it to the journal. So Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on that. I think you won student paper submission of the year for the conference. Is that right? Yes. It was myself and then uh, Mudia Uzi, who is a candidate at Johns Hopkins. Nice. Um, we were, we were co- co-winners of the award. So. Great. Yeah. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. Yeah. And like I said, for folks that are interested in reading the paper, I'll make sure that it's linked through the podcast because it is a really compelling paper and I think uses data analysis methods that are, at least for me, novel. And I think really bring a different perspective to this issue. So just for a little bit of background on waiting period policies, Wisconsin prior to 2015, had a 48-hour waiting period policy where a person who wanted to purchase a firearm, if they went to a federally licensed firearm dealer, had to wait 48 hours to be able to to take their handgun home after purchase. That was repealed in 2015. And investigators like Stephen, like folks here at the Medical College of Wisconsin, have been interested to see what the impact of that repeal has been on firearm suicide rates in our state. About half of the people in Wisconsin who die by suicide use a firearm in their suicide death. 
that percentage is higher for certain populations like veterans and folks that live in rural communities, farmers, uh, for example. So with the repeal of this policy, there was sort of this, I don't know if we want to call it like a natural experiment. There was sort of this context that allowed researchers to look at what, what the repeal of this policy did in terms of outcomes related to firearm suicide. And so, Stephen, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you approached this paper and then what the conclusions were that, that you ended up seeing as part of this? Yeah, sure. So as a kind of an introduction in comparative policy analysis, if we're trying to you know determine or estimate what effect a policy change had in one state, it's, it's helpful to have a comparison or a control to see what happened in a state that didn't have that policy change. But it's, it's often hard to find you know, like a single comparison state that would be a, a good comparison. So an innovative solution to this, which I, I think is pretty intuitive if I'm able to explain it well enough, is synthetic control estimation. And that involves using a weighted combination of, you know, other states to construct a composite state of the, the state that you're investigating. So if we're looking at Wisconsin, you take a donor pool of other states and there's a weighted combination to make that group of states similar to Wisconsin. And you can kind of compare what happened in Wisconsin versus what you predict to have happened. And so for this analysis, uh, there were the, the donor pool was pretty limited, but something that was interesting was a few, few of the states that have had waiting periods for the entire study period were similar to Wisconsin. So there was Minnesota, which has a, a handgun waiting period. Illinois, and then Iowa had a permitting requirement, and a byproduct of that was essentially a waiting period in terms of having to wait to obtain a firearm. So for the the suicide analysis, the synthetic Wisconsin was made up of 55% 55 Minnesota, about 24% uh, Iowa, and then 21% Illinois. So these are all states that border Wisconsin, and they have relatively similar sociodemographic characteristics. And this synthetic Wisconsin, if you look at the suicide trend leading up to the intervention, it mirrors that for handgun suicides. It mirrors the handgun suicide trend in Wisconsin. And so with that, we can kind of use it as a prediction after the policy change happened to compare what happened in Wisconsin with what we would have expected to happen. Yeah. And so it's, it's useful to have this synthetic control as a counterfactual to kind of estimate what impact the policy change had. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting method. One that I like I hadn't heard of before reading this paper. So I think it's really interesting. And I mean, we we talk about regional effects of these different policies and things like that. And so it's it's interesting to bring in other states that have similar contexts and similar policies and then be able to kind of look at a good comparison then between those donor states, like you said, and then and then Wisconsin. So I I, I think it's a really cool method. <laughs> For sure. Stephen, can I ask a question? And I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but just looking at the paper, can you explain the, in this graph, like on the third page, it just says treated and synthetic. I want to just make sure I understand like what the synthetic, is that the... Yeah. So the treated is Wisconsin and then the synthetic is the control. So it's the, the weighted combination of those other states. Got it. Okay, cool. 
And so for people that can't see the paper uh, or don't have it pulled up, can you maybe just describe like what that looks like or what, what you what you found? Yeah. So with handgun suicides, the handgun suicide rate in Wisconsin was higher than the other states, which kind of presents a difficulty in terms of trying to get a combination of those other states that reflects that same trend. And part of that is due to how other states classify firearm suicides. But I used the demeaned suicide rates prior to the intervention. So if we're looking at just the trend from 1999 to 2014, Wisconsin's handgun suicide trend is increasing. At the same time, you see the trend in the, the synthetic control is, is closely following it the entire way. Um, so there's very little divergence up until 2015. And when the waiting period repeal happened in 2015, you see a huge divergence in terms of the handgun suicide trend in Wisconsin jumping up quite a bit. And then the, the trend in the synthetic control just kind of continuing on the path that it was. And so that post-intervention divergence, that's the, uh, what we're estimating as the treatment effect of the, of the policy change. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. It's like, sometimes like a, a picture's worth a thousand words. Right. And I feel like that we're like, these lines are kind of bumping along very similar. And then there's this line, right. Where this policy happened and then Wisconsin suicide rates, just the slope of the line increases so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you, when you say intervention, you're talking about the policy change. That's, that's kind of what that, what that means for folks that are, that are listening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's stark. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see. And so, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the implications of this? What are your takeaways from, from the analysis that you did with this paper? The, the findings suggest that means restriction policies, even if they're just a temporary delay, like a waiting period is essentially just a delay in terms of when you can obtain a firearm or in this case, a handgun. These types of means restriction policies can, can prevent suicide by limiting practical capacity. And as I mentioned earlier, it, I, I think it's a policy can be a really good complement to interventions happening at, at other levels. Mm -hmm. In general, it just underscores the, the importance of uh, restricting access to lethal means. I think another kind of interesting policy in contrast to waiting periods, they're similar, but extreme risk protection order laws mm -hmm. where waiting periods are universal, those are a more targeted policy in terms of someone who has exhibited that they're at higher risk of suicide, having uh, suicidal ideations or maybe attempts, and then petitioning for an extreme risk protection order to temp temporarily uh, restrict their access to firearms. So uh, overall, I think it, the, the results have implications for, for policy and, and, and just underscore the importance of lethal means restriction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, one argument or perspective, I guess, that I would say I've heard from folks who might question or might try to highlight limitations of this type of a policy is that if you have a waiting period and somebody is having suicidal ideation or they're in a suicide crisis, that they are just going to find another means that they are going to look somewhere else and attempt suicide, uh, even in the absence of a firearm. 
And what we've seen in the literature is that that simply isn't true, that if you're able to put time and distance between a person and their method or means of ending their life, that you're able to, in many, most cases, prevent that suicide from occurring. So it really is about, with in the case of a, of a waiting period, it's that time piece in putting that time between a person and the means that they have chosen or thought about for ending their life. So I think that's, that's an important point that I wanted to bring in kind of from that, from, you know, different perspectives on that. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I think it was outside of the scope of this paper to look at other suicide rates by other mechanisms of injury and how those looked in these states. But yeah, just curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah, I didn't use the synthetic control to look at other methods, but something that was interesting that I didn't mention previously was there was a significant increase in the proportion of overall suicides that involved handguns. So before the waiting period repeal, about 26% of, of all suicides involved handguns specifically. After the repeal, that increased to, to 32.5%. And if you break the firearm suicides down by handgun versus long gun, before the repeal, 50% of firearm suicides were involved handguns. And after the repeal, that increased to 66%. And then when you look at long guns, before the repeal, 44% of firearm suicides involved a long gun, and that dropped down to 30%. And so, and so it's a little bit of the reverse of what you were talking about in terms of substitution, but making it easier or quicker to acquire a handgun. It looks as if people went and bought a handgun and there was some, some substitution from long guns, but there was also an overall increase in the firearm suicide rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I, I do recall seeing that in the paper. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that forward. Just that overall increase in proportion of suicides that involved a, a firearm in Wisconsin. You know, we've, we've obviously got this, the repeal of this policy that was at the state level. Were there any other societal level things that were going on during this time period? Other factors that you think could have potentially contributed to this increase in proportion of firearm suicides? Are there other things that you think might factor into this? Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, that, that's certainly a limitation of the method in terms of we expect that that synthetic control trend is what would have happened had the policy change not occurred in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. In terms of like a confounding factor here, in terms of that, it would have to be something that was specific to Wisconsin and didn't happen in the other states in terms of like Iowa, Illinois, and Minnesota were all part of that synthetic control. Mm-hmm. And so it would have to be a, a change that, that kind of co-occurred with the policy repeal. Okay. And I, I'm not you know, aware of other major changes in Wisconsin, but looking at the, the increase in handguns and also just the significant proportional or significant increase in the proportion of suicides involving handguns, it kind of points to the waiting period repeal as being a major intervention at play. Yeah. So I want to transition a little bit and talk about strategies for how we can bring this type of information forward to policymakers, to others that have some say in this policy and being able to provide this evidence along with evidence from other papers that have been done around the repeal of Wisconsin's waiting period policy. Given that you have studied public policy, 
What are some kind of practical suggestions that you have for maybe bringing this information forward and then advocating for better policy to prevent firearm suicide? Yeah, I think this podcast is helpful. I think obviously circulating information online about policies and research findings is really important. It's hard to offer a concrete suggestion. A policy like waiting periods generally is pretty well supported among the public as are other firearm-related policies. So it's hard. The disconnect between the widespread support for these types of policies and then what's happening at the state level or, or in action at the, the federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wish I had a better, well, it's okay. better recommendation. Yeah, no, I think that it speaks to the complexity of this. That's the work of public health to really bring this information forward and get it into the hands of people that hopefully can make change. Have you seen policies like this be repealed and then be reinstated? Or is that something that you haven't necessarily seen across other states? Uh, that, that's a really good question. I can't, at the moment, I can't recall okay. something related to this where the policy was repealed and then reinstated several years down the road. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Something for us to continue to look at for sure. Yeah, as we're thinking about this. Is there anything about the article that we haven't talked about that you would like to mention? I guess just kind of a, a brief summary of the results. I, I we, we talked about the increase in terms of a percentage increase. The analysis suggests that there was a, a 3% increase in the handgun suicide rate relative to the synthetic control. And for overall firearm suicides, about a 7% increase in that. If you translate that to fatalities, that's a, a, about, I think, around 25 additional firearm suicides a year. Wow. Which, which is, a, I mean, going into it, I, w- I wasn't sure what to expect in terms of the results, but... It's, it's a pretty striking finding in terms of something so simple as a, a temporary delay to obtain a firearm having such an impact. And those results, real quick, I'll mention, they used a, another method, which was an extension of the synthetic control, and it's called the augmented synthetic control method, and it generated nearly identical results in terms of 30% increase in the handgun suicide rate and about a 7% increase in, in firearm suicides. It's really interesting to me, like, if I was coming into this, like, with a blank slate, so to say, what would I hypothesize that the results would be just delaying access to a firearm, not like removing it, just delaying it? Like, would that keep people from dying from suicide from a firearm? And like, I guess it's a little bit counterintuitive in a way. And and so I just wanted to to share that, that like, that's part of my reaction, I guess, to the findings. I also want to share that, like, certainly there are people whose suicide by firearm obviously wasn't prevented by this delay, but we've, there's this compelling evidence that, like, even though we can't prevent all firearm suicides uh, with this type of policy, that, like, we can significantly decrease them. Mm-hmm. So I feel like some of that's stating the obvious, but maybe just thinking about out loud a little bit about now that we've gotten into the weeds, you know, kind of about the statistics and stuff, kind of getting back out, like, like you were saying, some of the implications of this. I, I think similar to what you're saying, it, it is a bit surprising, especially because the population that it's expected to affect are people who don't already possess firearms. And so, you know, a 
I don't know exactly what the proportion is in Wisconsin, but we wouldn't expect a waiting period to to have a, a treatment effect on people who currently have firearms. So I think that's a really important point that you just made. And I don't know off the top of my head the firearm ownership statistics for Wisconsin. I would suspect more than 50%, but I, I don't know for sure. But I think that's a good point that this type of policy is not necessarily going to affect those that already have firearms in their home. That's when we need to look at other methods of of lethal means restriction, like safe storage, voluntary storage off-site, and potentially at the policy level, an extreme risk protection order, like you said, Stephen, which we don't have in Wisconsin, but is an example of a policy that could prevent suicide among folks that already own a firearm. What this policy is really targeting is folks that maybe don't have a firearm. And I, I will say that, and Andrew can definitely back this up, I'm sure with some of the work that we've done through our research, have heard the story a number of times of folks who, you know, will go to the firearm dealer in the morning and will attempt suicide in the afternoon with, with a newly purchased firearm. And so it's really those folks that this type of policy would seem to potentially benefit. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in terms of the actual transfer taking place with a federally licensed dealer, the National Instant Crime Criminal Background Check System aims for 90% immediate determination rate. So that means they're trying to, for the background checks that are being conducted, they want 90% of them to be able to be completed within a few minutes. And then also, if, if the sale doesn't go through at three days, there's the default proceed that can occur, which if the background check isn't completed, at three days, the, the firearm can be transferred anyway. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about the universal background checks is that many folks who die by suicide are not going to meet the profile of folks that would be precluded from purchasing a firearm anyway. And so, you know, I think, again, we've talked about this a little bit, but it's kind of that layering of interventions and policies that, and I think the 25 lives potentially saved in a year is a very compelling number. And I think that's really when we're talking about advocacy for something like this, that I feel like that's the number that we need to focus on. You know, you think about your own family um, or you think about, you know, your workplace and 25 people. I mean, that's not a small number. Thank you for bringing that forward because I think that's a really compelling statistic that will mean something to to folks as we're talking about this. For sure. And we know that like those the brothers and sisters and parents, you know, of those 25 people, you know, losing to someone, someone to suicide increases suicide risk uh, for those individuals. So kind of think about the ripple effect of those. Mm-hmm. I wanted to share two thoughts that I've, I've been biting my tongue and, and being a good listener. <laughs> um, so one is, I, I just wanted to confirm that this hold was only on handguns, right? Correct. Okay. I'm just thinking like for people for whom firearm access is important, this wasn't restricting access to firearms in the long term, and it wasn't restricting access to long guns at all, even temporarily, right? Mm-hmm. I guess if I'm imagining, if I were in that person's shoes, that this policy, I think, would be a lot more palatable to me than some alternatives that are discussed. 
Yeah. And I think in one of the recent surveys within the last few years among firearm owners, I think that support was at least 70% for waiting periods mm. and then higher among people who don't own firearms. But yeah, that, that's that's a really good point. It applies to handgun purchases. And for the most part, there's no restriction on uh, firearms for hunting. And, and so it doesn't seem to impose a particular burden or infringement on, on firearm access for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I guess the second point that was on my mind is we all have a responsibility to voice our views to our elected officials, you know? And so I think everyone listening, you know, contacting your legislators at the state and federal level and just saying that like this is a policy that you would support if that's the case obviously i think can have a huge impact i also just wanted to mention afsp or the american foundation for suicide prevention does great advocacy work and has a lot of resources for people that want to learn more about how to advocate for policy that would support suicide prevention and so if you just Google AFSP advocacy, it'll take you to their page. Something I like about this is that it it makes it easy to be involved in advocacy without needing to feel like you have to follow what's up for a vote or follow the policies or know this. They kind of break down like, hey, here are like three relevant policies and legislators that are involved with this. So you can go to that. And then if you hit take action, it'll show you bills or policy that you can influence. There's also become an advocate where you can sign up to be involved and notified of, of AFSP's advocacy efforts. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, that's a great resource. And I really appreciate you bringing that to folks' attention because, you know, it is important for folks in the community to be voicing whatever whatever that view might be to elected officials. It's an important part of prevention. I mean, it's an important part of being a, a community member and a neighbor and a friend and a loved one. So thank you for bringing that resource forward. I'm going to check that out again. <laughs> and yeah. I'm, I'm on the board of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention here in Wisconsin. And I feel like I need to refresh my memory with what's out there because you're right. It's a lot of practical advice, suggestions, things like that, and, and makes it a little bit less, I think, intimidating to sit across the table from an elected official and, and voice your opinion or send a letter voicing your opinion. Yeah. And, and I think like, I just want to throw out there that I don't expect everyone to agree with this policy, you know? And so for me, if data that I'm presented with conflicts with my opinion, a challenge is to really reflect on that. And so in this case, we have some compelling data about the effectiveness of this policy at suicide prevention. But if you don't support this policy for whatever reason, or think like that there are other avenues that we should be pursuing to prevent suicide, like still voice that to your legislators, you know, that you care about suicide prevention and want them to be for example, like researching what is going on in the state for suicide. Like it so if this isn't a policy that you personally support, like just encouraging people still to be involved with that advocacy. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end today with that message that being involved in in advocacy for suicide prevention is really important. As we talked about at the very beginning, policy matters. So it's important to help that process forward. So thank you so much, Stephen, for your work. Um, This is incredibly important work, and I just really appreciate what you've done 
to help us advance this discussion, to have these discussions in a thoughtful way that's rooted in science is, is really, really helpful. So thank you for the work that you've done. And I hope that maybe sometime in the future, we can work together on something. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for those words and for having me on. It's, I really enjoyed the conversation. And again, I'm a big fan of the podcast. So thanks for all the work that you're doing as well. Sarah, we have fans. I know. <laughs> or at least one. I know. Yeah. We have one fan. Yeah. Hey. And, yeah. and he's a great fan. So thank you. I think my dad is a fan too, but like Aww. there's some obligation there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It matters <laughs> when, yeah, it's it family matters, but you know, it's yeah. it's it's something when when somebody that doesn't have to like the podcast does. Even yeah. so. yeah. do you um, have any like do you have a, a Twitter or anything like that? that people can follow to check out your future work? Yeah, it's at O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T-S-N. S-N, like Nancy? Right, uh, Stephen Nicholas. Awesome, awesome. We'll get ready for hundreds of thousands of followers coming your way. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thanks again for being here. Yeah, Yeah. thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Just a reminder to listeners um, that there are lots of resources available in our state for suicide prevention. One that I want to just quickly highlight is our Alternatives to Suicide peer-led support group that is currently operating in Wisconsin. If you're interested in this group um, and you're somebody that lives with suicidal thoughts or is supporting somebody that has suicidal thoughts, you can Google mhawisconsin.org slash alt, the number two, and the letters SU, Alt to Sue, and you will be connected with information about the alternatives to suicide groups that are operating here in Wisconsin. Thanks as always, Andrew, for contributing and helping me lead this conversation. I, Like I said, I feel like there's so much of a good compliment between our disciplines that I uh, just appreciate having you um, as part of the conversation today. So thanks so much. And hopefully you will be able to tune in to next month's episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.